Welcome back to the Pilgrim Faith Podcast, where human wonder fuels the quest for Christian wisdom. I am joined once again by my good brother and co-host, Dr. Joseph Minnick. And today we have the very special privilege of speaking with Christiana Hale about her new book, uh, Deeper Heaven, A Reader's Guide to C.S. Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. Uh, for our regular listeners, you'll know that C.S. Lewis holds a very dear part of our hearts, uh, and he's an important conversation partner that we tend to talk about basically every single week in some fashion or another. Uh, Christiana is a teacher at the Lagos School in Moscow, Idaho. She teaches Latin and English. Uh, she's obviously an author. Uh, she writes fiction, nonfiction, and some poetry. So Christiana, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Yeah. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So I guess one way we could start to get into a conversation is by talking about the title. Uh, so Deeper Heaven, you're sort of riffing off of uh, C.S. Lewis's chapter in um, That Hideous Strength. Uh, he brought Deeper Heaven down on their heads. Yeah. Uh, and you use that to sort of jump off and talk to us about Lewis's understanding of space and why that space trilogy as the ransom trilogy has become known uh, would really be repulsive to Lewis uh, because space sort of marks out something cold and dead and lifeless, uh, whereas heaven um, actually gets more to what Lewis would have thought about the cosmos. So talk to us a little bit about that first, about Lewis's understanding of uh, medieval cosmology and how he views the cosmos and the heavens. Uh, and then we'll get into more of your, com more of your um, commentary on the trilogy. Yeah, so I remember one of the first things I noticed reading the trilogy through the first time was um, at the very end of Out of the Silent Planet, um, Ransom himself is writing, I think he's corresponding with Lewis, the, the character, right? So, so Lewis kind of puts himself as a character in the series as a kind of a historian Right. He, he's heard all these stories from Ransom, which he even mentions that is Ransom is a is a pseudonym. Right. So to protect the names of the real people, which is kind of a fun little yeah. uh, element that he that he plays off of, which I think, you know, people kind of forget because we just come to know Ransom as Ransom. But Lewis yeah. is trying to make us feel like, oh, these these are things that really happened or could have could have happened. And he says something specific about the idea of the heavens being. Um, being the primary point that he would like people to take away from the story, right? Um, that we would move back to that older conception that uh, we wouldn't really see it as empty space anymore. And I, I think it's quite amusing that with that being very, very obvious in the end of the first book that we still call it the space trilogy, which I think probably Lewis thinks it's funny too. You know, he, he probably, right. he wasn't really a, a two stick in the mud about that sort of thing. So he'd probably be like, uh, it, it's fine, you know? So I, I don't get mad at people when they call it the space trilogy, but it is, I think it, it is funny to note uh, that that is kind of the point um, that he's trying to make. And he even says that um, later in a letter to someone, someone points out that, that shift that happens. And he says, I'm glad you pointed that out. That is one of my favorite things about the Ransom Trilogy is, is this shift in trying to recover this view of um, the heavens as opposed to space. And it's primarily a, an imaginative and an emotional, you might even say spiritual kind of view of creation. Less, you know, he wouldn't say we have to unlearn everything we've discovered about the actual formation of, you know, the order of the planets or that We've sent space, you know, men into space and they haven't run into this glass sphere. And we know that that's not actually the, the material layout, if you will, of the, of the cosmos, but it's how we view the cosmos in relation to the creator and the rest of creation and fitting a biblical worldview, you know, mm -hmm. fitting it into a biblical worldview as well. What does the Bible say about the heavens and the way they actually work. And yep. so I think, so that's what he's primarily interested in when it comes to utilizing the medieval cosmology. He even says in the discard image, you know, he says, 
these are all great things. The problem is it's not actually true, <laughs> right? This, <laughs> right, is, this right, is amazing, right. but right. it's not actually true. So yeah, I think he's playing around with ways that we can actually utilize that older view of things in a really vibrant and creative way. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder, I, I was just uh, teaching uh, with some folks last week and, and discussing the discarded image. And one wonders if part of what's going on in the space trilogy is, you know, he uses this metaphor that the the uh, the medieval saints looked up to the heavens and they saw a cathedral and they didn't have that sense of claustrophobia. So they didn't feel like, you know, that vast cosmic sea, you know, punctuated by little dots. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, the, the space is sort of full. And, and that that seems to be part of the imaginative shift. In fact, I, I hadn't read that. I hadn't read out of the silent planet for uh, my goodness, it must have been 25 years almost until I was going to do this interview. So I was yeah. like, oh, I'll pop it open again. And that paragraph you describe in the book is, the, is really the most important paragraph in the trilogy really struck me because it still fits with a, it still even fits in a modern cosmology in that, that light, in a sense, if you're, if you're even if you could imagine yourself in a spaceship, uh, you know, in the middle of space, you would still see a sky, a, a sky that's full of light. That's uh, still the, yeah. the, the starlight and that. And so there's a, and he wants to almost kind of say there's a fullness. Yeah, there's a kind of pulsating fullness there. And one, one, uh, one, uh, one wonders is, and, and maybe I'm asking for a comment if, if you think Lewis would take it this direction. It's as though perhaps the gesture is to say that in modern cosmology, we should less think of the cathedral as gotten rid of as rather expanded. You know, it's like that maybe the maybe one way to look at the new within the new cosmology to sort of appropriate the discarded image in a new cosmology is to say that what to whatever extent the cosmos expands in our yeah in our scientific imagination precisely to that extent it's just the cathedral getting bigger uh, yeah that work do you think with Lewis is uh, uh, I, I think so yeah I mean he he uses our modern arrangement in the ransom trilogy so there there is this scene where um in the outside planet where he comes across one of the the creatures the fiffle trig uh he's like he's he's carving out an image of the cosmos and he mentions the order that he's doing the planets in and it's not the medieval order which is very interesting i thought mm. um so he he kind of he's trying to fuse i think he's fusing those two mm. those two views and again, I, I do think it is, like you said, say, yeah, we're just learning more about the cathedral, but it's just as, it's just as created. It's just as mm-hmm. much a work of art um, mm. as, as the medieval saw it. Um, but we have, we've kind of moved away from that perception um, because, you know, as a, as a culture, we no longer really see things as being created, you know, right. think evolution for that, right? Um, that this is just, it's just all kind of formless. It's still formless and void, right? Instead right. of that, you know, it's, it's being created and, and been shaped. And so we're just expanding on our, our knowledge of what God has made and how he has made it. Yeah. So maybe uh, it would be helpful to um, give us as succinct, sort of clear, explanation about the medieval cosmology that Lewis is drawing from as he picks up his pen and begins to write uh, the trilogy. And then we'll get into Donna Gallaty and we'll sort of see how he creates environments in each of the story that are pulling on this medieval cosmology to, yeah, tell, tell us what yeah. he wants to tell us. Yeah, so so the medieval cosmology, obviously, you have the form, and then from that certain form, you have certain um, ideas or theories that come to play. So the form of it is you you have the seven planets in a certain order, with Earth at the center, um, versus our you know our solar centric system. The Earth was at the center, which and then that is one thing that I think Lewis talks about quite a bit, and. Um, is really important to understand because we we tend to think, oh, they thought Earth was at the center, therefore man is the most important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we we say that all the time, center of our, your universe, right? You think you're the right. center of the universe, you're the most important thing. Whereas I think we forget what they thought about the center, right? The center, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, center of the Earth is actually hell, 
right? And at the center of hell is Satan. And so they saw the center as being going lower and farther and farther removed from God, right? right. Um, so the central place that mankind possesses is not one of importance. In fact, it's one of unimportance and humility. We're kind of the the basement of the universe, right? Um, the, the, we're, we're just kind of you know tucked away, which Lewis in the discard image, he actually says this presented a dissonance between their cosmology and the Christian faith because the Christian faith grants an importance to mankind. We're created in the image of God. Um, Christ came and took on human flesh. And so there is actually a cognitive dissonance between weight but we're but we're the sump pump of the galaxy <laughs> and yeah, yeah, yes yeah. we're also important and have this dignity so um so that is a thing that lewis uh, i think addresses in a in an important way throughout the trilogy but um so so earth is center you have these planets kind of arranged moving outwards everything above the moon so the moon is the next planet outside of earth is unfallen unaffected by the results of sin and the fall and everything below the moon, then the sublunar realm is um, affected by decay and, and breaks down the effects of the fall. And then the other, the other important element that Lewis draws on a lot is that the planets are governed by um, planetary beings, or I think he would say angelic beings, the medievals saw them as being personalities, right? Um, they're not just these balls of rock in the sky, but they actually have uh, have personalities and all these elements that are associated with them. And because they're unfallen, their influence of their personalities affects the earth. So uh, mm. we get things like, you know, people, we have all sorts of words that we still have from this people born under, you know, a certain planet have certain personality, like the word jovial, right. Right? Yes, um, right. Comes from Jove and Lewis himself claimed to have been un born under Jove. though I don't, I think he just really wanted to have been <laughs> born under Jove, but yes. yeah. Yes. So, so we have still have remnants of this in our, in how we talk. Um, and so, so those, that's another element that he loved. And I think, um, Dr. Michael Ward, who wrote Planet Narnia, he, I think, expertly shows how Lewis drew, drew on that idea for the Narnia stories, um, which is more of a, it's more of a subtle, subtle thing there, whereas I think it's just kind of coming out front and center in the Ransom right. trilogy, because he's not even trying to hide it, really. It's, it's right. coming out all over the place. Um, so yeah, so that arrangement is, is the physical layout of the cosmos but then obviously there's all sorts of other elements that um the medievals believed in when it came to beings that fill those different spheres of the cosmos um and and just how it's how it affects mankind really and mankind's place right. in the universe one of the one of the things we discussed when we had uh, dr ward on the program was that um uh that in one way, in Narnia, Lewis is almost being the planets himself because he's showing the kind of uh, the vibes of the planets, if you will, yeah. still work on you because, you know, your children are reading Narnia and enjoying it and sort of being sort of charmed by the wizard, as it were. Uh, and so he almost uh, as, as a he takes on the role kind of showing the discarded image still has purchase. Uh, yeah. And I was just thinking the thing you said about uh, uh, very interesting point that yes the the kind of man is at the lowest point of the cosmos is a misunderstanding one of the one of the things that is fascinating about the Galileo scandal and I'm sure you realize this uh, given what you just said but is that a lot of people think that it was sort of uh, scandalous because it made uh, it uh, it decentralized man but it was actually I guess you've already said that point but I guess it was also controversial because you're by shoving uh by shoving the planet, as it were, higher into the spheres, you were overly dignifying man. You were actually, uh, you were actually kind of making him an angel, <laughs> in yeah. a sense, by shoving him at the sort of one of the outer layers. So a, a big theological yeah. controversy. Uh, but that's a fascinating point. Uh, you mentioned the incarnation, and I think, I think that's an that's an interesting theme. Uh, one of the the most fascinating themes, it seems to me, in the whole trilogy is how the kind of uh, uh, 
almost the, if I could put it in reformed terms, almost the coven, covenant administration uh, of, the, of the planetary age epochs changes with the incarnation, uh, that they're, they're, they're kind of all waiting for this, this God to come onto some planet thing all over the cosmos. Talk to us maybe a little bit about what, well, how is Lewis kind of playing with the theme of incarnation, do you think, kind of overall in the series? Yeah, it's, it's funny, actually, the one of the early titles of the book was, before we settled on Deeper Heaven, was Beneath the Eyes of Heaven. Um, which hmm. isn't bad. It's it doesn't, not quite as punchy. So a yeah. part of that idea was that earth, uh, and this idea comes up again and again throughout the series, but that the eyes of heaven are all fixed on earth because something happened here that is not just, does, Lewis, I think would argue, doesn't just affect mankind, but it completely changed, changed the entire universe, the entire cosmos, um, hmm. because you know, in a certain point in history, God became man and dwelt among us. And that's that the effects of that are, you know, we, we become so, I think, numb sometimes to mm-hmm. how astounding that is. And especially mm-hmm. if you grew up in a Christian family, a Christian home, and you hear it, I mean, obviously it's still, still impactful, but you can kind of, you start to kind of just take it for granted. Oh yeah. yeah. You know, Jesus, Jesus is God made man. And that's the story. I know this, I know the Bethlehem story and the baby in a manger. And, Mm. and I think we, we do lose sight sometimes of just how extraordinary and, and earth changing literally that really was. And Lewis, and that's why I think Lewis loves fiction. um, And he loves to instill fiction with these sorts of ideas because it can carry them. Right. There's, um, a strength to certain stories that they can carry a lot of meaning and mm. see things in a totally different perspective. So in Paralandra, I love the conversations that Ransom has in Paralandra because you're seeing you're seeing Earth and you're seeing the history of mankind from a totally different perspective. You know this this totally foreign and other perspective, and it it really it presents opportunities for discussion you wouldn't ever really have because you're not going to run into an alien and have to explain to them, you know, about the incarnation and about the crucifixion. And, and, but then, but Lewis says, well, what if you did? And let's, what would that conversation look like? And, you know, Ransom has to explain things in a totally different way than he's ever had to explain them before. And so I think, I think that's one of the the really impactful elements of the trilogy is these conversations that um, put things in a totally new light. They bring life to things that maybe have kind of become dull and, and mm-hmm. commonplace in our lives that really shouldn't be. And right. so I think I, that's one of my favorite, favorite elements is the theme of incarnation the, and the central importance of the incarnation in the Christian faith and in, in the history of the world, that this is, this is, resurrection glory entering into the middle of human history and that's that's hard to overstate the importance of that yeah you actually uh you you have a good you have a i was just talking to joe before you joined us um you've got a very fascinating section in the in the latter part of the book about gnosticism and incar uh, incarnationists or what do you call them or incarnation incarnational i don't know i can't remember something the term right yeah. i know it was hard right. to type yeah <laughs> yeah 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 well that's when you just like as soon as you get the red squiggly line on word you just say remember this one and then it yeah yeah, yeah. um so yes and this is i think important especially in the modern age, if we think of Lewis as a sort of prophet, and I really do look at Lewis as a prophet, uh, looking down to the future on where this is all going in terms of education and how people are interpreting reality, he really did have his finger on the pulse. In Out of the Silent Planet, which the title really shows us a lot about what the story is doing. So you were talking about translunar and sublunar under the moon is where the fall has affected everything. And when Divine and Weston capture Ransom and take him beyond the moon, that act is actually violating the seventh law and giving access for deep heaven to come back down into the silent planet. 
this is just so brilliant uh, because then ransom becomes a bridge and um, y- yes, but what is it that that reconnection with deeper heaven, how did Lewis understand that? So we were talking about sort of the influence, the personalities of Mars and Venus and Jupiter. Uh, how is that cashing out in his storytelling? So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but I do want to ask like in Out of the Silent Planet, where's the emphasis on the personality of whatever planet Lewis is sort of focused on and then in Paralandra and then in that hideous strength? What is he trying to show those planets having an influence on the sublunar silent planet? And then we'll get into a conversation about how this all really comes together. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think so. It's interesting because the first two books don't take place on Earth. They take place on um, Mars and Venus, respectively. And the third book stays on Earth, which I think gives it a very different, different sort of mm. feel or or atmosphere. Um, so there are, I mean, there are a lot of different ways I think you could look at the influence of the planets and how Lewis util- utilizes them. What I do in my book is I focus on the character of Ransom because I think I think Ransom is really the key to it. So tracing his growth as a character and his role in the different books. So I think the first book, he's on Mars very clearly. I think it, the whole book is about him becoming Marshall primarily. And mm. there's all sorts of language that Lewis uses mm. um, to really drive this point home very subtle, you know, you might not on the surface even notice it, but there, he, even just the words that he chooses to describe mm-hmm. Lewis's feel, uh, sorry, Ransom's feelings and um, the, just the ideas that he's having in his head, you know, even very soon after landing on the planet, he runs away, he get, manages to escape from Weston Vine and he, he had stolen a knife and he had kind of kept it on him. And the thought occurs to him, he's like, I could actually use this to defend myself and he's startled by that thought even just like i'm not a that's right like, i'm not a violent yeah. man he even fought in the war and he said that wasn't my cup of tea you know he's mm. and so already kind of the air of mars is is working on him and until he finally he he becomes uh, a a uh, I am trying to find a good translation of Nakra Punt, right? Which is the like slayer <laughs> of the Nakra and, and with the Harasa. And they like, he, he becomes actually this, you know, he's joining in with them in this very martial exercise, right? That's not, not very him. And so I think that's his, his journey through the first book, which is in turn preparing him for his role in the second book. So it's all, all building where in the second book, um, his ultimate test of his, you know, you could say mar- martiality. <laughs> is that even a word? Yes. I'm making it up. Um, you can make is, it up. Yes. Is you that donagality, so you can yeah, make it yeah. martiality. <laughs> there you go. Yes. That was actually, that was Dr. Ward made that one up. So, oh, yeah, right. I yes. Just, I just stole yes. it from him. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, he, he slays the unman, right? He, in the, right. in the end of, by the way, no spoilers when you're having right this sort of yes. discussion. I suppose oh, no spoilers. It's been out long if enough. Have... Hopefully, you've read the books. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and if you <laughs> haven't, shame on you. You yeah. deserve yeah. a spoiler. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tell my I tell my eighth grade English students. I said, "There's no such thing as a spoiler in literature class, really, because yeah. we got to talk about the whole yeah. thing, really." That's right. So, the thing, you know. yeah. um, so so that is kind of the culmination, I think, of his the the martial spirit that he was learning on Mars. But then in Paral- I argue that he's prophet, priest, and king, right? Like he's an mm. image of Christ, right? He's displaying all those, all those elements, obviously in miniature. And so in Perlander, he has the role of prophet very clearly um, yeah. because he's sent there by angelic beings for a specific job. He's uh, he's trusting that he'll know what to do and what to say when the time comes, which is a very prophetic kind of thing, right? They're, the prophets are always just given given the appropriate mm. words at the right moment. And and then finally, in, in the, that he is strength, he's described in very, very kingly imagery. He's likened to King Arthur and to Solomon, and he only eats bread and wine. That's his diet, which is a mm. very, you know, kind of and he performs a priestly function in bringing Jane and Mark back 
um, back together. And so all of those, all of those elements make him a very, very strong Christ figure throughout. And they are also though influenced by the planet that he's on. And um, I think guided, guided in that way as well. I'm not, and I'm, I'm not claiming full credit for that idea. I fleshed it out a little more, but Dr. Ward does talk about yeah, some of those yeah. elements in Planet Narnia. So, um, right, so he right. kind of was the inspiration. And then I'm like, okay, I want to dig even more deeply into this and, and see what I can pull out here. So yeah, yeah. It, it'd be worth, um, one of the things that you, you make some fascinating comments on is the relationship between Mark and Jane in that hideous strength and that there's a, uh, 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 almost you, you could see that, I mean, the, the whole series, you know, sort of climaxes in this, this love scene, really. Uh, uh, I mean, that's, uh, and it's, it's the sort of the martial element and the Venus element sort of coming together, uh, uh, in, in man and woman, but you make a very interesting comment about how, you know, in one sense, Lewis in, 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 in that hideous strength is portraying, uh, uh, as your book points out, there's all of a sudden several female characters. Female characters have not been particularly prominent in the first two books, but in the third book, there's several types of women, as it were. And Mark and Jane are clearly sort of your your young, uh, bougie urban professionals. You know, this is the, this is, you know, Lewis is, Lewis is writing about very modern people. This is a relationship yep. we've all seen a million times. And, and this is something Lewis is always trying to do is actually imagine in a sense, how a modern person in a modern world with, in, in a way, the kind of architecture of modern life can nevertheless appropriate the old ways and appropriate, you know, with the discarded image, but also with gender. Uh, and so it's interesting, uh, you make this point that she finds her redemption at the moment she learns, uh, uh, she learns a certain submissiveness, she learns a, a spirit of, she, she, she takes on a different spirit that's more biblical and sort of against the kind of the kind of all the vibes that everybody's telling her that she needs to be as a woman. But he, on the other hand, learns, uh, he, on the other hand, is redeemed when he learns, in a sense, not to go with the flow. You know, he, it's actually not just being the professional who gives into like all the like, okay, I'll just do the thing so everybody's happy with me and, you know, I'm making my thing. But it's actually when he says, no, I actually, I actually need to be against something and fight a battle. <laughs> That's actually yeah. when he sort of is redeemed in his manhood. And I thought that was very insightful. Maybe talk, uh, what do you, what's uh, maybe, maybe how does gender, what's Lewis's interest as it were in gender and the whole, and the whole thing, or maybe if you want to say about that hideous strength specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's a fascinating theme. And honestly, I could have probably done more on it in, in the book, but I, time and space, you know, yeah, time yeah, and space. Right, right. If I had but world <laughs> enough and time, right? Yes. Um, but that's always always what we say. But um, I, I wanted to focus particularly on it in that he strength because I do think it is one of the primary themes in that book, um, directly relating to the fact that in that he strength, the NICE, the nice, right? They are wanting to recreate humanity. And they really, they want to just, they want to be into control, total control. And what that essentially looks like is, ends up being a wiping out of humanity, really, right? They want to remake it, but remake it in a non-organic, non, I don't know, non-binary, right? They don't want male, female. They don't want all the messiness of of mat of creation, right? Organic matter. They right. want it all to be like metal trees and metal flowers, right? And just and just yeah. sterile, sterile all the way down. And, and yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so Lorax, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think that is direct that's why it comes out, you know, you contrast that with St. Anne's, right? The group, this group of kind of ragtag bunch yes. of most, mostly women actually I think the women slightly outnumber the men in St. Anne's and then you have you know a bear Mr. Bultitude and mice and birds and it's just very very homely and very very organic right you can actually when you read about it it's like you, you know what it smells like when you walk into the kitchen right, right. um there's and there's you know someone smoking pi a pipe over there and they're making dinner and the men have to do the washing up and it's just very you know very homely and and normal. And that is what they are fighting to preserve though, is that just that men and women living simple, ordinary lives 
the way they're meant to. And so I think Lewis, again, that's why that the, the roles of the genders really comes out in that his strength not very popular topic today so yeah <laughs> um yeah. i uh, you know in, in writing those chapters i was i was writing them like well i could make some people really mad with what i'm saying but <laughs> oh well let's, just, let's yeah. just go for it so um i think again and then the headship and submission again is not a kind of a hot button topic but that is what lewis is addressing with mark and jane and what's fascinating though i think is really important to note is that Jane is meant to submit to her own husband, right? There's the scene that's really crucial where she she's tempted to submit to Ransom. She's like, he's yeah. the he's amazing. She has kind of an awe of him and is tempted to just give in. And he he said, you ought not, you may not, right? I'm not the one. And but Mark, he's so much harder to submit to, right? He's yeah. he's a lot of he's he's a piece of work himself. Kind of a loser. I mean, yeah. And, yeah. and so they both have to wrestle with the fact that they're not necessarily married to someone who makes it easy for them to do that. Uh, and yet they're married to that person. And so they have to, they have to work with that. And it's just, so I think it's very fascinating, their journeys and their different, again, their different temptations that I think Lewis is saying are fair. I mean, they're, they're unique to those characters, but they're also fairly standard as far as, um, gender goes right women generally yeah. are do struggle struggle they're meant to submit to their own husbands and that's a struggle because we're fallen and we're sinful yeah. and we were told and the, you know eve was told that you know that's yeah. part of part of that original curse and you know men are called to lead and to sacrifice themselves for their wives as christ did for the church and that's hard that's it's difficult to do in a fallen sinful world and so mark and jane are both tempted to abandon those callings, they do have some specific personality quirks, right? Mark's desire to always be accepted and to be inside and to be seen as being in the inside and in the know. I think, I think there are definitely people, men and women who relate to that temptation, right? right? You want to be, even, even if you're not part of the cool kids, you want to be seen as being part of the cool kids. So right? it's not actually right. about being with those people. It's about, being seen to be with those people mm. and then jane she just wants to be in her ivory tower doing her really boring studies on john dunn and writing her research that no one <laughs> will care to read and that's okay though because yeah. it's just her and her academic utopia right by herself left alone with no messiness of dealing with other people yeah. and both of them have to have to sacrifice that um and really because it comes down to their pride in the wrong things right and so yes. they both have to wrestle with that and sac ultimately sacrifice it right you know i i think that uh joe and i were also talking about this before you joined us uh, <laughs> but... prophets here we talk about everything before <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking we're, we're talking about the same book yeah um but yes so i think that precisely christiana in the modern age the temptation, I think, is to sort of tiptoe around the modern landmines mm -hmm. um, of controversial subjects that could cancel us, uh, that could get us in hot water with the wrong people. And we have social media and worldwide connection and all of these things. And your name could be maligned quickly. And if you rely on your name to, like, you know, put bread on the table for the family, that becomes a problem. Um, but Lewis is much bigger than this. Uh, I think what Lewis is doing is saying, okay, we're moving into modernity. There are real problems here. And I'm trying to like figure them out along with everyone else. But nevertheless, if we can like zoom out, if we could zoom way out and you can get out of the current political sort of dilemma that you find yourself in and think about Jupiter, <laughs> uh, that all of your little pettiness here on the silent planet would be humbled under the weight of the cosmos. Um, so simultaneously, humanity is extremely important because we're made in the image of God. Uh, but we also hold the lowliest position in the cosmological order. And so there's a sense of dignity and respect and pride 
even pride above the angels that long and desire to look into the miracle of God doing something to us. Uh, but there's also the humility of being the lowest in the cosmological order. And so when we encounter the sort of current cultural phenomena, um, we can, we can, we can uh, rise above the general discourse and say, oh, God is much bigger than like pronouns. Um, now they are yeah. important and we should invest into whatever we're given in God's providence to deal with. Like sages, we need a nation of sages, as Lewis talks about in Miracles. Um, but that he's a good orienting character for liberals or for progressives and conservatives alike, because he really does draw you outside of the of the stream yeah. of the of the constant uh, bombardment on social media about all of the next hot topic items. Yeah, yeah one of so, the. Oh, I'm sorry, Dale. Go ahead. No, well, I was going to say that's not a question. It's more of a comment, but I'm. It's sort of like reinforcing what you're saying, and and to say, I think one of the functions of recovering the discarded image and really digging deeply into the ransom trilogy is to do precisely that: to get outside of your own little bubble of consciousness, to think broader, because God is big, and He's done a bunch of stuff with all of these little lights in the sky. Uh, so. I agree 100%. That's all I, that is more of a comment, but. Oh, okay. I was, Sorry. I was going to say uh, one of the things on what you were just saying, Christiana, is, is that. Uh, Christiana. Christiana. I got it wrong. <laughs> ah, <darn> it. <laughs> you, made it, you made it a while. I made it a while. <laughs> 45 minutes. I mean, we're feeling good about that actually. Right. Uh, um, <laughs> You know, part of what Lewis, of course, is doing in his project is sort of tucking away controversial things in innocent literature that is interesting in its own right. And yeah. one of the things, you know, very often the, con you know, you know, you throw out a word like submission or something like this, and it's such a trigger word, and we've all inherited it. And kind of in the context of the culture wars, Lewis is partly writing before, before that, but he's also writing, and, and I found this striking as I was reading both Perlandra per uh, preparing for this. Um, if you can imagine this, I had I had never read Paralandra. <laughs> I'd read the other two, but I'd never read Paralandra. So, uh, and of course, there's so much about about gender in there and and in the third book. But it's so attractive. I would dare say that even a yes. modern person who's been trained, uh, it would be difficult, in fact, to to be a modern person, even if you've been trained in public school and have had gender ideology shoved down your throat. If you just stop for a second and read these books. I think it would actually be hard uh, for a very human part of you not to feel a little bit of magic working on you because the way he portrays it is really not, it's not a polemic. It really is the goodness, the, or, the organism itself, the, the shining beauty of the organism itself. Uh, and Lewis is no stranger to, 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 to the complexity of gender, which he, you know, he writes about in the four loves. And of course, in his own relationship with joy, there was a weird, a weird symmetry, you know, there. And in the, and in the character of Orwall, of course, in, 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 uh, uh, uh till we have faces uh, as a very complicated, he writes a very, he writes a very complicated woman. Well, uh, yes. uh I gather though, uh, I, I believe that it's widely whispered that joy helped him a, a little bit, uh, <laughs> get the details right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but fascinating. Maybe one way of um, of uh, sort of gesturing toward a close here would be to talk about, you know, what do we do with this? You know, on the one hand, again, the the, the paradox of Lewis is sort of uh, isn't this cosmology fascinating? Uh, and yet also, you know, the medieval cosmology is in one sense quote quote wrong uh, on a certain register at least. Um, uh, and yet we talk a lot about things like re-enchantment these days. We're all disenchanted. We don't see the world as created. And sometimes we think of it as just, you know, memorize these things. And then we'll look at the world as enchanted. And yet enchantment is, 
as I've, you know, Dale and I've talked about this a bunch of times, it seems to me is mostly about us. We need to become re-enchanted. Uh, it's, it's, it's not the unit, the universe is as enchanted as it's ever been. <laughs> it's we who are atrophied. And I wonder if you could maybe say a few words, and I think you do toward the to helpful words toward the end of this book. If you could say a few words about what do you think it might mean to look like for ourselves, <laughs> you know, not the world, but for ourselves to be more kind of reattuned to the to the to the livingness of things to the creativeness yeah. of things yeah what what is yeah. that yeah well like, i think, think i think obviously as a as a teacher one one huge element is education and teaching and and teaching not just education in the sense of telling telling a student this is cool right yes. you should <laughs> like this but I, I and obviously there's a time and place <laughs> there's yes, time and place for that you gotta shove things down the throat every but, now and again yes, right. but obviously yeah. that does start with the teacher right if the teacher is excited and interested you can make students interested and you can make something interesting and you know being trying to be to be copious and connect things right uh, that students love that. I teach, I teach junior high and high school, which is a fun age. Junior high, especially is great fun, <laughs> great fun. Yeah. Um, but they love, they love connections, right? They already love discovering that what they learned over in this class actually has something to do with what you're talking about now in this class. And so obviously part of that, you have to have a teacher that's able to do that. And, and so being a teacher who is constantly learning and reading and and being able to utilize that. But so classroom, I think it's a lot of this. A lot of it starts in the classroom when kids are young, yes. or with if if you're a parent with your own kids, um, is you know noticing just noticing things, just looking, looking around, um, looking outside. And so on that note, you know, I think I say at the end of the book, go outside. When's the last time you actually went stargazing? Mm. Most people probably haven't done it in a while. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. you know, and, and just the, the immensity, the magnitude of God's creation and how, I mean, it's hard to look out at a night sky full of stars and, and not be in awe and amazed by that. Mm. And having that in, in holding that in one hand and holding an education in the other hand, where you've read what other men have said about the stars. So when you look up at the night sky, it, it's not only what's in front of your eyes, but it's what's behind your eyes. It's what mm. you've read. It's what other men have said throughout the history of the entire world about the stars, memorizing scripture, right? Internalizing mm. the by the word of God and what comes out, right? We, we have many, many words um, in the Bible of what people say when they look up the sky, right? Mm. Heavens declare your glory, right? And so if that's dwelling in us richly, it will come out. So the, the word of God and the created word of God, which you know, we know creation is, is God's words in, in incarnate, right? He spoke right. everything mm -hmm. in being. And so those two things together, the word of God on the page and the word of God in creation, I think um, holding those together is really, really important. And, and so that is one thing that I think that will, that will help to reawaken just, just seeing, seeing what God has done everywhere we look. Right? Mm. There's, there's no yeah. place you can look and not see something that tells you something about the way God is. Mm. Yeah. It's almost like, chipping the crust off of your imagination that modernity is sort of settled on and like joe said atrophied uh and when we talked with dr ward the first time um about planet narnia um he's the one who actually attuned me to this there are actually over in the uk anyway there are these dark spaces now they're called dark spaces where people are like flocking to the country without ambient light just to look at the stars wow. <laughs> uh, and i don't think yeah. that these are, i'm sure there are religious people involved with it but i think that there's just right this is the dow this is the this is the this is the uh, music of the spheres calling to us as image bearers begging us to look at the beauty that we already have sort of uh, intrinsic um but this is the last thing i'll say, uh, ask you christiana so um, you're a classical educator. Uh, I'm sure you've read uh, David Hicks' book, Norms and Nobility. I think oh. so. It might have been a while, but. It's probably been a while. It was published like back in the 80s and then there was a bunch of other editions. Yeah. Sound, sounds what, familiar. 
Yes, very, very good book. And what he talks about is the relationship between mythos and logos. So he really does get into, and you do at the end of the book. Um, there, there is something, as Joe was saying, to the fact that it's it, it, the ancient, the medieval cosmology is factually untrue. But the mythos can carry the weight of truth more so than actual facts in some in some cases. And this is what Lewis was very concerned about. And I think the Bible does this at times. Like the Bible actually carries us along um, an ax head floating on the water, physically impossible. According to every scientific test that we run, we wouldn't reproduce, we wouldn't replicate this. And I think the you know Christianity will say, well, that was it was a miracle, but and that may be true. But part of understanding what's going on when God tells us that is that He is really using a sort of mythos to explain reality in a way that only myth can. So what is the, how should, especially in the modern age, especially for younger generations that are growing up, how should we balance this tension between sort of storytelling myths and then facts and logic? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> what, what is the relationship and how do they synthesize or how do they complement one another because they're not doing the same thing, but they're gesturing towards the, te the telos. You're trying to relate what? Joseph Campbell and Ben Shapiro. Uh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> yeah. 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 Perfect, Joe. Oh yes. Well, I think one one thing to note um, at the start is that I think myth is a part of who we are as as human beings, and you can't really escape it. I do think it's an inescapable concept. You're going to have myth. Are you going to have, you know, the myth of you know, there was this big bang that caused all the goo to become all the things, right? I mean, evolution is, is a myth, really. Um, and, and you have also, I mean, everyone's going to have certain myths that are prominent in their lives. And the, I think that Lewis talks about, and I talk about this in, in Deeper Heaven, is the difference between true myth and false myth, right? You can actually have true and false myth, which is kind of a yes. strange... Uh, strange idea to us because we tend to just use the word myth to mean oh it's false it's automatically false mm. um, and that's not that's not what myth though in the in the sense that Lewis uses it um, actually means so myth is very prominent I think it's part of honestly part of how we operate myths speak to us and actually I was I was just reading today I'm I was getting ready to write uh, write an article um, and. I was reading Lewis's experiment and criticism yes. and he actually talks, right which now. is an excellent, excellent. Yeah. It's really, really good. He has, there's a lot of gems in that. And there's a section where he's talking about myth and he says something interesting about not all myths will actually speak to people, to different people as myths. Right. So there's an mm. element in which we the way we receive mm. something as a myth, um, make kind of bestows this sort of myth status on it yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. at, which is which is really interesting a fascinating way of looking at it that you know one person could read this this account or this story and it just it carries this weight of truth in it that speaks to them in a way that is beyond just a good story, but it actually sticks with them and it has achieved myth status, right? Um, because it has communicated something about reality to them in such a way that that sticks with them and changes them. I think that everyone has something like that. I mean, I, I think if you ask anyone, like what's, what's a story that has significantly changed the way you view the world? I think we'd all have something like that. And even some of them maybe aren't, are very silly and don't seem like myths at all. Yes. But um, so I, so I think again, it's not, it's not whether you will have you will have a presence of myth in your life. It's what kind of myths will they be? Mm. And so surrounding yourself with, with true myths, with myths that tell the truth again about the way the world is. And, and those are the ones that are the most impactful. I mean, Lewis himself 
those sorts of the, the tropes, right, of the dying god metaphor, you know, trope throughout different mythological stories. And all of these elements that he just loved were beautiful to him. They were enchanting to him. And he was always bemoaning the fact that but they're not true. Right? They're not real. They didn't really happen. And it was that conversation about that with, with Tolkien and, uh, and other friends that he realized there, there's something going on here beyond them just being false stories of things that didn't really happen. There is a truth down at the center of them. And so um, I think reading, reading widely and well and being you know shaped and formed by the right kinds of stories is a huge um is important because you're going to be, you're going to be told stories. You're going to be shaped by those stories. So which ones are they going to be? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and that's, I think, and obviously comes down again, because I'm a teacher, (laughs) education, (laughs) right. So it does that, that's, that's come, I I like come to back that back to that a lot. You know, I don't have kids, right. I'm not married. I don't have kids right now, but I have 120 (laughs) that I, that I see every day. So, you know, I have lots and lots of children that, that, you know, and so, Sur- you know, surrounding them with good stories. And thing is, if you're trained in good stories, you're going to have an eye to the bad ones. You're going, you're mm-hmm. going to, mm-hmm. things are going to ring false and you're going to notice that. And you're going to know that Robins are good birds and you can trust them to follow them into the woods and they'll lead you to the beaver, right? Who yeah. will then lead you to Aslan. Yeah. So, so being trained, right? Having training ground in store, good story and good myth and true myth is going to make you more sensitive to, to the, the false ones. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, that's a great note, I think, to, to close on. Uh, I, yeah, I think that's a great note to close on. And just as a, you know, as an advertisement out there, um, I think this book, if you were, you know, if, if you were homeschooling or you're teaching a college course or anything like that, or have a high school or junior high course, and you're working through Lewis's trilogy, I think this is actually a very good, I mean, it functions honestly as a good textbook. It's very convenient for students uh, and draws a lot of the literary connections and that sort of thing to Dante and to, to various sources that most of us wouldn't know because uh, we're not C.S. Lewis, but uh, uh, Christy Anna Hale uh, <laughs> oh, yes. teaches this and knows these sources. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very helpful and I think very accessible. Uh, I think a good accomplishment. Um, uh, well, you can find us on Facebook. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, our, our SoundCloud uh, channel where we uh, hit all the, uh, what do you call those, Dale, the podcast catchers, uh, yes. some, something like that. Uh, look on the media and you'll find the Pilgrim Faith podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. Normally, Dale does the ending and he knows all the things to say. Uh, yes. But uh, <laughs> Christiana, thanks so much for being with us. It was, uh, Thank it was you. great to have you. And, uh, we yeah, will... you're welcome. This was really, I really love it. Any excuse to just talk about Lewis, I'll Perfect. take yes. <laughs> well, We're yes. always game for that. <laughs> and when you crank your next book out, we'll have you back on. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it might be a little while, but <laughs> no worries. No worries. I'll be here. All right. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, goodbye, everybody. Take care.